I mean, who could resist an all-powerful God? No one could. Then you'd have a reason to blame God, and it's in man's nature invariably to blame. Eve attempted to blame Satan. She said, in essence, the devil made me do it. And Adam, well, we read in Genesis 3, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Adam was saying the immediate cause was Eve, but the ultimate cause was God. But listen, you can't blame anyone else but yourself. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are continuing our study in the book of James. Dr. Brogy reminds us that there is no temptation or trial unique to just us, and that God says it is common to all men. Let's join Pastor Carl as we continue our study in the book of James. Because that's when you're most vulnerable. And then in verse 13, he follows it with great encouragement. No temptation is overtaking you, but such is its common man. That is, no temptation is unique to you, as some people have falsely concluded. Some have thought, well, no one is going through what I'm going through. No one has ever felt what I feel. And God simply says, no, it's common to all men. Your temptation is not unique. It is no different from anyone else's experience. And so Paul continues, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. So still others reason, well, it may not be a unique temptation, but it is an unusually strong temptation. Maybe other people have felt the same thing, but certainly not with the same intensity. It was bigger than me. I was just overwhelmed by it. And God's rebuttal is clear. He controls the temptation. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. Still others would say, well, it's, it was uh, unique or it was exceptionally strong. But they'll reason, hey, listen, it was an impossible test. It, it may not have been unique. It may not have been exceptionally strong, but it was impossible there was no way I could have passed the test. It was an impossible test. And God reasons, but with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. These are two verses every Christian should have memorized. And if you're coming to my basic discipleship that we are teaching intermittently on Wednesday nights, and we'll be back in it a week from Wednesday... One of those handouts, you'll get 100 verses every Christian should memorize, and these are two of those. Temptation, it's real. And so he warns us here in James chapter 1 and verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why is that the profession of some people, that I'm being tempted by God? Because it is a man's nature always wanting to blame. Invariably, when you yield to temptation, you want someone to blame. And so the Apostle James reminds us here that we cannot possibly blame God, and he gives two specific reasons why. First, we cannot blame God because it's contrary to his nature. Look again in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. The devil cannot dangle some kind of bait in front of God and tempt him with evil. Why? 
Because first of all, there's nothing in God that wants anything. There is nothing in God that needs anything. God is absolutely complete. There's no itch that the devil can scratch. So no one can say that God is tempted by evil because he has it all. He is complete. He is absolutely holy. He is perfect. God is too holy to be tempted. He is the antithesis, the exact opposite of sin. You say, well, wait a minute. Was not Jesus tempted? James just said God cannot be tempted. You Christians say that Jesus is God. I thought Jesus was tempted. Jesus was not tempted in his divinity. Jesus was tempted in his humanity. In sense, the two natures of Christ are inseparably brought together into one person. He never sinned. If you take a piece of soft solder, or as we say in New England, solder, we speak more like the Brits up there in New England, though it's spelled S-O-L-D-E-R, and you take a piece of soft solder and you infuse it into an iron beam, all by itself, the soft solder can bend, but when brought together into the iron beam, it's not going to bend. Well, the temptations of the Lord Jesus, if you've taken my course on Christology, and some of you are listening online, we have sometimes between 30 and 40 states and foreign countries every Sunday live streaming, we have something called the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's taught on a graduate level, and it will ground you in the faith, and one of the courses is called Christology. And we look at the two natures of Christ and how they were brought together. And the Bible teaches what theologues call the impeccability of Christ. That is, the temptations of Christ were not given to see if he could sin. The temptations of Christ were given to show that he could not sin. And so when you are tempted, don't ever blame God, first and foremost, because God cannot be tempted by evil. It's contrary to God's person. But not only is temptation contrary to God's person, temptation is contrary to God's purpose. And he himself, the text says, he himself does not tempt anyone. Again, this is consistent with what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that God is not the great tempter, God is the great deliverer. He provides a way of escape. You say, well, how can a holy God make someone sin? And the answer is he cannot. It's totally against his person. It's totally against his purpose. So you see, if God tempted you, think about this. If God tempted you, then you'd have the perfect alibi. I mean, who could resist an all-powerful God? No one could. Then you'd have a reason to blame God, and it's in man's nature invariably to blame. Eve attempted to blame Satan. She said, in essence, the devil made me do it. And Adam, well, we read in Genesis 3, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Adam was saying the immediate cause was Eve, but the ultimate cause was God. But listen, you can't blame anyone else but yourself. And many times, people aren't necessarily so bold to blame God, but they'll say, look, the ghetto I was raised in, that's what caused me to fall. The glands that you've given me, the, the parents that I was entrusted with, man always wants someone to blame. And so you ask a man, why do you drink? Why do I drink? I drink because the woman you gave me drove me to drink. All she does is nag me. Nag, 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 nag. All she ever does is nag me. 
You interview her and you ask, why do you nag him all the time? Why do I nag him all the time? All he does is drink, 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 drink. And man is still saying to God, it's the woman you gave me. It's the background you gave me. It's the friends you gave me. It's the body you gave me. It's the environment you gave me. And that's what the psychobabble of the Christian world is teaching, sadly. But there's one thing is you cannot, you cannot, you cannot have an alibi for sin because God will not accept it. But it's in man's nature to habitually, continually blame. Secondly, it is in man's nature to sin. It's in man's nature to sin. You cannot say like the famous comedian of decades ago, Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. Because James plainly says here in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So sin is not an outside job. James is saying sin is an inside job. A man sins because by nature he is sinful. In Psalm 51.5, the great confessional sin of King David, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying that the intimacy that David's mother and father had was a sinful act. God endorsed it. He is affirming in that verse as the Hebrew underscores and emphasizes that from the moment of conception, because human life begins at conception, we are sinful, fallen people. An apple tree is not an apple tree because it bears apples. No, rather it bears apple because it is an apple tree. And it is in man's nature to sin, to do what is wrong, because by nature he is a sinner. And so the Bible affirms in Romans chapter 5 that we send in and with Adam. So you can't even dump it on Adam and say, well, look, I'm just experiencing the consequences of Adam's sin. No, Paul says the whole race was wrapped up in Adam's loins, such that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And so I recognize that this is totally contrary to modern psychology. Man is not evil. Man is ill. Man is not sinful. He's just sick. It's not really his fault. And so we live in a society of victims. Look, half my battle as a counselor, as a pastor sometimes, is just getting people to take responsibility for what they've done. So first, to face temptation well, we must understand man's nature. Second, to face temptation well, we must understand sin's nature. We need to understand sin's nature. Let me read verses 14 and 15 together. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now he highlights two characteristics of our sin. First, James, to highlight these two characteristics, he uses three critical words that you might want to underline or circle in your text. First, he speaks to the sin nature as it has its conception. But each one, he says, is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Circle or underline the word lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Underline the word sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's a description in these two verses of the anatomy of sin. The first word is lust. The second key word found in verse 14 is sin. And the third key word found in verse 15 is death. 
Now, the word lust simply means a strong desire. It can be used positively in Scripture or negatively. Before we're done with the epistle of James, it will be used positively. Now, it won't come out that way in the English text, but it's the same word as we will see. It can mean a strong desire, but it can also be used, as it's being used in this context, of a negative desire. Now, oftentimes when we hear the word lust, we associate it just with sexual lust. But the truth of the matter is in the New Testament, it's referred to any kind of strong desire that's against God's will. Now, I hope you understand that the various drives that God gives us in and of themselves are not sinful. It's when you seek to fulfill that drive in an ungodly fashion that it becomes sin. And so sleep is normal. In fact, the psalmist says he gives sleep to his beloved. But when it becomes laziness or slothfulness, the Bible refers to it as sin. Eating is normal. It's something we do. Jesus often fellowshiped with his disciples around a meal. But when it becomes gluttony, it becomes sin. Sex is a normal drive. I believe in it. Otherwise, I would not be here this morning. But when that drive is attempted to be fulfilled outside of the confines of marriage, which is defined between a man and a woman, and let me say, we are in for a radical year. We have people with an agenda of evil like we have never seen before that are going to come into our government. And you need to come to next week's sermon. I'm going to depart from our series in James and speak on a very specific topic, and I'm going to address some of these issues. But we've got an agenda of evil that is going to unfold that deals with transgenderism and homosexuality, And how you view some of these things, freedom of speech issues, and on and on the list goes. Listen, I don't care what the government calls a marriage. God's definition between a man and a woman is the only definition that is taught in Scripture. Now, interestingly, there are two colorful words used here in verse 14 that describe Satan's tempting process. The first Greek word is translated with two English words, carried away. And it's used in classical Greek of a hunter who baits his trap. When my brother Kevin and I were 10 and 11 years old, respectively, he's 11 months older than I am, we decided to go up in the fields behind our house to try to catch a rabbit. And we dug a hole. It took us half the day, about two and a half feet deep. And then we uh, placed twigs over the top of the hole. And we topped it off with sticks and grass. And, and we were hoping to catch a rabbit. And there on the top, we put a beautiful carrot. And we were just hoping. Well, the only thing we caught was Prince Nolton. He was running through the field. And he stepped into our two-foot hole, sprained his ankle, and tore his coat. And he could have wrung our necks. That's the thought behind the Greek word that God gives James here in this passage. You're trying to convince an animal that he will be satisfied with the bait. But what you cannot see are the hidden consequences. Unfortunately, those rabbits were a lot smarter than we were. But the second word that he uses is translated here, enticed. Some of your translations, the New King James says, drawn away. The ESV in the Net Bible says, lured. And it was the Greek word used for the baiting of a hook when you go fishing. 
So there's the fisherman, and he's hoping to catch Mr. Bass. And so he thinks, I know Mr. Bass is hungry today. And so he puts a particular fly on his fly rod, and, and he puts it out there right next to that lily pad log. And he's hoping that he's going to bite on that log. And then suddenly, boom, he hits it. He's enticed. He's drawn away. He just sees it, and he can no longer wait, and he gobbles it, and he is hooked. That's the idea that James is conveying here. The devil always wants to hook you, and the devil knows the kind of bait to get you with. He may dangle adultery or pride or envy or greed or dishonesty, any number of things he may use. His goal is to draw you away. Now, please understand, the temptation in and of itself is not sin, for the Lord Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. The temptations that are recorded in uh, Matthew 4, Luke 4, fit into three realms, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So Jesus experienced every kind of temptation that we will face. But it's what you decide to do with that temptation that becomes critical. I was counseling a young man yesterday, and he said, you know, how do I get rid of these temptations? And I said, you'll never get rid of temptation. Now, you can feed temptations, and we're to starve the sin nature. But the question is, what are you going to do with that temptation? It was Martin Luther who rightly said, you cannot prevent the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. And that's what James is underscoring. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. So he's using here the analogy of pregnancy because there must be conception for birth to take place. And so what James is saying is when you have the outward attraction with the inward desire and the two meet, then you have sin. When it's conceived in the heart, it gives birth to sin. And so James continues this argument given to him by the Spirit of God. The sin nature has its conception, but then he reminds us that the sin nature has its consequences. The sin nature has its consequences. One of Satan's oldest tricks is to bait you into the act. You see, when conception takes place, you have a developing baby. And even so, sin, it's not static. There's a progression to it. And its consequences certainly can be cut off by repentance. But please understand, sin is never static. It is a law of God. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will reap. You will reap what you sow. You cannot sit in front of the television night after night after night and feed on trash and filth and expect it not to affect you. You know, there are some parents who are headed for heaven, but humanly speaking, their children are headed for hell because they thought, oh, you know, the kids are in bed and they're not around and we can pull this off without anyone knowing and they're feeding on trash And they're short-circuiting the spirit of God's work in their life. And their ability to protect their home, to have discernment, is lost because God is not mocked. I am sure when King David was looking at beautiful Bathsheba taking a bath, that he never would have predicted the consequences that would come with that sin of adultery. You see, because of the sin that was conceived in his heart, 
There was the sin of adultery, and not only adultery, he got Uriah drunk. And beyond getting Uriah drunk, he got Uriah murdered, and not only Uriah murdered, but because of this evil, vicious act, many of Uriah's men were murdered that didn't have to happen. He ruined his witness as the king, and from that experience, four of his sons died, and he was a broken-hearted man. They died living awful lives. We all die, but they died living an awful life. And what Nathan, what he said to Nathan the prophet came true in his own life. And he never, ever, ever again, this man who was a friend of God, he lived with the consequences This man who was a man after God's own heart, he never again regained his undisputed place as the king of Israel. Sin is serious. And we are to be ruthless with sin as it is with us. That's why Jesus said, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Why? Because it is serious. Now, he did not literally mean cut off your hand or your foot or pluck out your eye. Because if you pluck out your right eye, you still have the left eye in which to execute the sin. Surgery was not the problem. It's a heart issue. And so Jesus is wanting us to see how ruthless we must be with sin. And so here in verse 15, when lust is conceived... Sin is born, or to use his words, it gives birth to sin. And then James adds, notice, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The conception of sin followed by birth does not result in life, in something meaningful as the devil habitually promises you. It results in death. You have a stillborn. I mean, have you ever seen how enticing the alcohol ads are? They show some picture of a frosty, cold glass and a beautiful mountain scene. Many times uh, there in a bar room, accompanied with women dressed seductively. And they spend millions and millions of dollars to, de- to, to bait some poor fish with their drink. But they never show you the consequences, do they? When my wife and I were in New York City a year ago last December, I saw one gentleman laying there in the gutter on a cold night, covered over in his own vomit. They don't show you those pictures. They don't show you the wrecked automobiles. They don't show you the beaten wives. They don't show you the frightened children. They don't show you the adultery that comes with drink. They don't show you the violence and the murders. They just show you the beautiful glass as it sparkles. They never show you the serpent's bites. There are many foolish Christians who think I am ignorant, that I am legalistic because I say you shouldn't drink because it is strong drink and it is their ignorance that does not understand what strong drink is. That it's not whiskey and vodka and the distilled liquors that come a thousand years later, but it was wine fermented by all these big shot Christian leaders. I can have a beer. I can have a glass of wine with my pizza. And so first the man takes a drink, and then the drink takes a drink, and before long the drink takes the man. You say, what kind of death does he mean here? Is he talking about physical death? 
Is he talking about spiritual death? Is he talking about eternal death? And I would say all of the above. It depends on the person. A non-Christian can experience eternal death in the lake of fire. Why? Because his love for sin becomes his God. And it keeps him from yielding to Jesus as Lord. And a Christian, even a Christian, can experience physical death prematurely. And so 1 John 5, 16 <clears throat> speaks of a sin that leads to death. He's talking about physical death. Or 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep. That is, you've died prematurely because of habitual, unchecked sin in the life. And certainly for the believer, death can mean broken fellowship with God. That closeness, that intimacy, that life that God wants you to know, that the devil does not want you to experience is lost. And so the sobering command, do not be deceived. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And sometimes Christians have been deceived into thinking, well, I've done such and such, or I've done so and so, and it hasn't hurt me. Remember, it takes nine months before you get the baby. And you may think nothing has happened, but whether it's nine seconds or nine months or nine years, sooner or later you will meet the consequences. It's like the cigarette smoker who thinks that he can smoke with impunity. So one of my neighbors, now in heaven, a dear Christian man, loved him to death, had a stroke. And his doctor told him it was not for the 15 years you haven't smoked. It was for the 25 years that you did smoke that you got this stroke. And so James is saying, do not be deceived because sin deceives us. It always promises something that it cannot deliver. So first, we are to face temptations well. We have to understand man's nature. Secondly, if we are to face temptation well, we must understand sin's nature. Third, finally, to face temptation well, we must understand God's nature. James has told us that God, what God will not do, that is, he will not tempt you because it's contrary to his person and contrary to his purpose. So if God does not tempt, then what does he do? Well, James first reminds us God gives only good and perfect gifts. Now, I want you, beginning here in verse 17, to see how James uses invincible logic that should serve as an incredible encouragement to you. So let's start with the theology that he gives from nature, from the physical world, so that we can understand the major and minor premise that follows. Let's start by reading all of verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He describes God here as the father of lights. In fact, the Greek text says, tone photon, photon. You can hear our word photo from it. It's literally the father of the lights, which you could figure out even if you didn't know Greek. He's pointing specifically to the two great lights above that God made to regulate the years and the seasons and so forth. So the sun rises in the east and it stands high in the sky at midnoon and then as it sets in the west, things get dark. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 003. 
You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling, or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays a role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. Join us next time as we search the scriptures.